Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Hazel, this is your actual house in Wales? Yeah. So excited. You're so adult. I know. I'm such an adult now. Yeah. So weird. Yeah. January 2022. So you, though. You're way, you're way more advanced in the, on the adulting scale than me. Yeah. <laughs> you're like well, ready to be a yeah. father and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm older too, right? He's a Finley interview. Yeah, but you're 35 I'm like, now? I'm 36. All right. And a half. Yeah, see, I've got I'll be 33 start. this year. Oh, yeah. See, there you go. Okay, we're, we're rolling. Hazel, will you give us the basics? Yeah, uh, I'm Hazel Findlay, and I've been climbing for, ooh, like 26 years now. And I grew up climbing in the UK, mostly sea cliff, sea cliff climbing with my dad. Hazel is a pro climber and mental strength coach. She's free climbed El Cap four times, climbed 514C on gear, and is one of the very best at the unique scary and dangerous craft of British trad climbing. Hazel's just a great climber. She's composed, methodical, you know, thoughtful. She's really good at venturing into the unknown. So you Harry Potter fan? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I don't know if you've ever heard of climbing like referred to as like, you know, you've got wizarding families and muggle families. I was from like a half wizarding, half muggle family, you know, where like my mom's a muggle and my dad is a wizard. My dad was like the cool father who like did really fun exciting adventurous things with us my parents were divorced yeah so like every other weekend or in the holidays we'd go climbing and he was just a massive fan of the sea cliffs and I think the main reason why is because we don't have a whole lot of wilderness left in the UK and the sea cliffs still feel kind of wild they're like these untouched bits you know you don't get tourists roads stuff like that as soon as you drop down onto the sea cliffs it's like just you and the nature and stuff so yeah, just followed my dad really. Didn't didn't really have a choice <laughs> until I became an adult. I really like thinking of your dad as a wizard. <laughs> yeah. I think some of the more like profound moments I had were actually when I was younger, growing up doing this sort of thing. I think it's really unusual to be a 12-year-old girl and like be on a cliff, like thinking, oh no, if I mess this up, I might be in the ocean with like a rack that weighs almost more than me, like dragging me to the bottom of the seabed, you know? <laughs> and I like, you know, I remember just being in floods of tears on some of these routes. And like, I'd look down and my dad would be like chain smoking, rolling tobacco like, as he's feeling me. And, you know, it's just like, I think some of those, having those kinds of experiences when you're young really shape you. Um, I'm not sure in what kind of way, but definitely, I mean, probably profound ways. I don't know. <laughs> Did you understand the risks you were, you were taking then? Both my parents, especially my dad, like empowered us to make risk decisions from a really early, early age. So for us, it was normal to make decisions about our own well-being and our own safety from very young. We live in such a safety, safetyist society. I don't know. I feel like we're probably lacking in those skills a bit. So in some ways, I feel really lucky that we experienced those sorts of decisions from a young age. Those sorts of decisions, the dangerous ones, the scary ones, the things that intimidate us. At its root, climbing asks us a simple question. Do you want to go up or do you want to go down? 
No matter what type of climbing each of us prefers, whether it's sport, trad, bouldering, indoor, or alpinism, we will face that question. And that answer for each of us comes down to what we are willing to risk in that moment. Failure, discomfort, falling, a prolonged epic, a trip to the ER, and even sometimes death. That is the game of climbing. In season three of Climbing Gold, we're going to explore risk, how we take risks, and what climbing can teach us about risk-taking away from the wall. And when it comes to this kind of decision-making, there's probably no better place to start than the United Kingdom. We're out of necessity, historic precedent, and a stubborn creative aesthetic, a spirit of adventure and danger has been preserved on cliffs that rarely exceed 200 feet. Alex, in all your travels, have you ever come across anything like British trad climbing? I have never climbed anything quite like the UK trad scene. And it's really hard to overstate how different it feels. In the UK, you're frequently considering whether or not you'll hit the ground when you're climbing. And it's totally normal to plan for your belayer to jump off a cliff or something to pull slack in faster in case you fall off. I mean, like it's totally normal to have what they call a ground runner, like a piece of gear at the ground so that your belayer can run straight backward and pull slack in faster. Because normally if a belayer runs backward, you know, they're making a triangle to the first piece. So you're actually not pulling in that much gear. Like for each step they go backward, they're only pulling in the hypotenuse of rope as opposed to the actual straight line. Oh, you're doing math, man. Yeah, well, exactly. So think like, <laughs> think anyway. So that's the thing is like basically there's strategies and their tactics involved in UK climbing that you don't even think about in the rest of the world. It's just so next level. You know, the gear, it's like everything about it is just like turned up to 11. Today, we bring you the story of a calculated risk gone wrong on one of Britain's most famous routes. James McAfee is a dark horse climber. I mean, nobody's really heard of him, but he's probably the best trad climber in the world. He's not just on-siding difficult trad routes, he's on-siding difficult and dangerous trad routes. James McAfee's whole experience on Master's Wall is the stuff of nightmares. I mean, it's everything that I just can't. It's like, it's just, it's just crazy. It's just so much. <laughs> like every, every aspect of the story is so over the top. Hazel Finley sticks around to help make sense of it all. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. You're listening to Climbing Gold. So can you explain what the UK trad scene is like? Broad strokes, like paint with a with a broad brush here. You could also just keep using Harry Potter references too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or translate it all into Harry Potter. That'd be I'm trying to think what like British trad climbing would be like in terms of the houses. Mm. I don't know. Maybe Hufflepuff. <laughs> and the UK has a very long history of climbing, right? It's like mountaineering and then rock climbing even though we don't have big mountains you know some of the best mountaineers in the world have come from the uk and for single pitch trad climbing it, i think the uk has got some of the best in europe and we don't have a lot of it which means that a lot of the climbing has been done already so that we sort of had to make the most of it and i think that's where some of our trad ethics come from 
we've had to preserve the challenge. So it just means that you have routes that are very challenging mentally because there's just not really much protection. In, in America somewhere, a lot of the trad routes will be following crack systems, right? And it's almost like crack climbing is synonymous with trad climbing, yeah. right? For, for a lot, in a lot of places, yeah. Whereas we don't really have any cracks. That's what's so weird. We have very few, we don't have any pure crack climbing places. And in general, we have few cracks. So all of the trad or most of it is um, face climbing and generally not following any obvious features whatsoever. That's why on-site climbing is so difficult is not only is it hard to find places to protect the climbs, but it's also just hard to find the way. And there's also a real on-site ground up ethic, particularly ground up. As soon as you abseil in or top rope something first, then, you know, the style has just dropped massively, right? Um, and people will save routes to on-site them for years and years <laughs> to the point when no one does anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what people are into. I remember that as as a feature of my trip to climbing on the grit was like half the local guys had been saving routes for their entire lives. And you're like, at what point are you actually going to climb the route? Yeah. Like, who cares if you onside it or not? Just climb the route. Yeah. It's like better to have done it in poor style than to never do it. Totally. They're just going to top rope it when they're 70. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I always remember, you know, I was like, I don't really get it, especially because as a visiting American climber, when you're just trying to do as much as possible on a six week trip, you're like, yeah. wait, why have you been sitting on this route for you know, 10 years, like just go climb it. Yeah. Like, I used to save routes when in my twenties. And then as soon as I traveled, I was like, wow, there's a whole world out there. There's no reason for me to save routes. In the UK, you ha you do have to worry about hitting the ground most of the way up the route. <laughs> uh, whereas nearly everywhere else, you don't need to think about it. The way you on-site a British trad route is really between the pieces of gear. It's it's quite different to on-siting a route in the States where the gear is quite obvious. You can focus more on the movement, whereas in the UK, it's like there's so much more to think about because, yeah, you might be in the crux, but that might be the only place where you can get gear for the next 10 meters. So even though you're in the crux and you're getting pumped out your mind, you need to get that piece of gear in. So you're kind of weighing up all these decisions in your mind. And it's, yeah, it's really challenging. So to accommodate the emphasis on on-siting and a tendency towards danger, the British use their own rating system, a technical grade that rates the single most difficult move on the route and an E grade which coupled with the technical grade gives you a sense of the consequences. That's the thing is it's weird, but then actually once you use them for a while, I actually kind of preferred it in a way because it tells you a lot more about the experience. Like when you see something as 10B, you're like, well, what does that mean? You know, like, what, like how is that going to feel? Whereas when you get to know the E grades pretty well, you know, if something's like E6, 7A, it like tells you a lot about what you're going to experience. That would be something like akin to a well-protected 513. And E6, 6B... Now, making a mistake there, that could mean hitting the ground. You know, most sort of completely terrifying moments don't last that long in climbing, right? Like, even last summer, I tried to on-site this route, and, you know, I read, I read the route a little bit wrong. I should have been, like, a meter above where I was and ended up doing this quite wild move. 
and like looking down beneath my feet being like, yeah, if I mess this up, I'd be so close to the ground or, or hit the ground. Right. And just, just feeling like this sort of the terror and the stress of that, but still managing to actually move well on the rock. That's quite cool. When you have those kinds of experiences, it's really empowering when you're like, wow, the consequences of this are actually really quite high, but I'm still like in control of my body and I'm still climbing well and, and I'm making good decisions. Like they're, they're pretty cool moments, um, but they don't last that long. So, you know, you'll remember them, but it's not like you'll be going home, like questioning, you know, the questioning life and death. Most of the time. Hazel, would you introduce CAF for us? James McAfee is probably the best British UK trad climber, I would say. Uh, he's well known for really hard head points, but probably more so for his on-sighting. He's, I mean, he will have on-sighted so many E6, E7s, E8s in the UK, you know, stuff that just hasn't been on-sighted by anyone else since. So he's just climbed the most extensively and the hardest routes in the UK, basically, out of anyone. He's like Mr. UK trad. Yeah. And he kind of fits the persona too, huh? He's like... <laughs> yeah. He's also known as the Dark Lord. After the break, an epic for the ages on Master's Wall, and we see if we can keep the Harry Potter references going. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. <laughs> I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. <laughs> if you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Guess on harder routes, I'm better now. But when I was 18, 19, I was miles better at dangerous routes. Most American climbers think of runouts as like, oh, that's dangerous. But you're, but what you're describing is like something being run out is fine. It's just whether or not you'll land on the ground that's actually dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, if the majority moves, you're going to land on the ground. 
I see that as a dangerous route. And, you know, and, and I guess that's where Indian face massive war. They are, yeah, that sort of route. Was just now and then, you, then maybe there might be a climb that you want to do that does have a, a, a bigger element of danger. And then it just depends on your, your desire and your, your self-awareness as well. Yeah, I'm James McAfee and I've been climbing since 1996. James is probably the best trad climber in the world. I should just say calf. Everyone just says calf. James McAfee. Calf. I bet he's on-sided more 512 and 513 trad routes than anyone else ever, which is saying something. How did you get into climbing? Uh, I think I fancied a girl and she went to the climbing wall. So I went there and then really liked the movement. You know, and then my dad was a climber, so we, so he'd been climbing all his life, but he used to bike down the Borodale Valley, and I used to think he was an idiot who was wasting his time. And looking at it from a kiddie perspective, you know, I was just like, what's he doing biking down there, climbing in these rocks? And then but I got him to take me out and up a classic Sevilla, so it's like five, five, six, you know, really quite easy climb called Troutdale Pinnacle. He'd done it over a thousand times, and we, we did it. And then from that after that, just almost every day, you know, you know when you've suddenly got the bug, every, every opportunity it's down this really beautiful valley the Borodale Valley in the Lake District very green lots of beautiful trees just like a little paradise but I, <laughs> so my first lead was awful dad dad was like I don't know if you're ready for it and I set off leading this like uh, I think it's VS4 4B uh, brown slabs crack and uh and I got and you know you know when things are different on the lead and you haven't realized quite how different they're going to be how more head game it is and I'd like disco leg and I fell off but I'd really shit gear in and then carried on and dad had bad eyesight because he only had one eye oh my god he could tell that things weren't good you know and he was really pissed off with me that i'd you know gone gone all all out on this this route i kind of shouldn't have at, at first how did your dad lose his eye yeah it was in a gang and um they were having some fight in somebody's house and he got kicked out the door and he, this is a bit of a tall story i mean he was full of tall stories dad and he reckoned that you know, a lot of people piled onto the door and trapped his head in it and that the guy who had thrown out the back of the house came back and bottled his eye so that's how he, he reckoned he lost his eye or lost his vision in his eye. Well, that's that's the UK trad scene, huh? <laughs> that is hardcore. Will you describe Cloggy for us? Yeah, so it's on the highest mountain in Wales, which isn't that high. You know, it's 3,000 feet or around 1,000 meters. So Snowdon, I mean, the Welsh name is Arwitha. Uh, and Clogwyn Diathi, that means the Black Cliff in Welsh. It's on the side of it, this mountain, quite high up. Well, it's about halfway up, more or less, maybe two thirds height. So in what you know, Wales is very wet. So it's in North Wales, quite dark facing. It only gets the sun, gets a bit of sun in the morning on that face I mentioned, and then it gets the evening sun. The rock goes quite greenish and it's a bit slippery. And in the middle of it, there's this beautiful band of rock called Indian Face. Is it even beautiful? It's like, I don't really think it's that beautiful. It's just a fucking piece of rock. I mean, that's the that's the bummer of UK climbing is that the roots aren't, it's not like you're like, that's an amazing wall. You're just gonna like, fuck, it's just another piece of rock. But anyway, um, like, have you seen, I mean, Cloggy is like a mountainside. It's not even like, it's not a striking cliff. It's just kind of like The Indian face is the prettiest part of a not very pretty. Of like a rubbly rock. mountainside. <laughs> yeah, so you're kind of like, oh, it's like a mountain of rubble. And then there's like, yeah, a little piece of decent rock. But you're kind of like, is that is that cool? Whatever. <laughs> it's so easy to make fun of British climbing. We're about to receive so much hate mail. Cloggy has a beautiful face that's home to two iconic routes, the Indian face and Master's Wall, which share the same start, but then branch off of each other. Both routes are very serious trad climbs in which a mistake could easily lead to landing on the ground. 
These routes, they've got a lot of history. And it starts with one of British climbing's larger-than-life characters, John Redhead. He, he was trying this wall, so he'd abseiled it. You know, he'd checked it all out. And I think it used to have a peg about two-thirds height, like downward pointing, not very good, but something to aim for. And, and he, he climbed up quite high, and God knows, he, might, he fell from about two-thirds height. So I don't think he was quite on Indian face, but on ma- what called Master's Wall, fell off. Fuck knows how he survived. <laughs> there isn't any good kit. You know, it's like there's hooks and some really shockingly bad kit, and it's quite far apart. Redhead comes back, puts a bolt in at his high point, which is basically like committing a mortal sin. Jerry Moffat came along, chopped the bolt, nearly died doing Master's Wall, and then Johnny Dawes came along and did a slightly purer line to the left, up the vague groove where the peg used to be, I mentioned, and then up the head wall, which is a dangerous head wall. You know, the head wall in isolation isn't too hard, but you are you are going to die if you fall off that head wall. In fact, you, you're probably going to cop it most of the way up the route, would have said. If you go to Spain, you know, it's world-class sport climbing. There's a lot of 7B plus 7Cs. That's fucking amazing. Really good. And the fact is the Indian face is just that, but without the bolts. So there's a lot of history, ego, and climbing icons wrapped up on this wall. It's the year 2000. Calf is a teenager who's soloing bunches of hard routes. His head is strong. He's got incredible endurance. And he's been onsighting a string of E7s, basically 512s with very little gear without very much trouble. Master's Wall gets a rating of E7-6B. So that's like 513 with tiny wires and hooks placed over edges for gear. Alex, how often do you place hooks for protection? I have never placed a hook for protection, (laughs) I don't think. I have used a hook once or... I've literally placed a hook twice, I bet. I did once to drill a bolt or two, maybe a couple times drilling bolts, and then I thought I was going to use a hook once for aid climbing, and then I realized that there was a bolt nearby and I didn't have to use it. (laughs) But it was in the dark, so I couldn't see that well. But uh, no, I never use hooks. Why would you want to climb a route like that? But around routes like that, part of it's like the history. And they they meant everything to me. You know, when just, you know, when, you you know, you you feel that climbing's definitely worth your life just to to push the boat out as far as you can. And and especially when I was younger, I, I was after, you know, finding that point where... You see what you can do when when you're in desperation. Since Jerry Moffat first did it in 1983, only two other people had completed Master's Wall. It was Calf's first visit to Cloggy, and he decides he's going to go for it. James is with his friend, Adam Wilde, who's also never been to Cloggy before. Neither one knows the big complex terrain. James sets out. Generally, over the years, I would have said I'm quite cautious. You know, I'm quite a cautious, slow climber. You know, I had a good head at the time. I was mainly soloing. So that serious routes, like, you know what I mean, like dangerous ones, felt all right. He's got two ropes so that he can avoid rope drag. And it takes him about an hour to figure out the first third of the route before he gets to the business. It's that sort of very complex rock that, you know, where there's lots and lots of little things that you could use. And you could make a, um, you know, it, it would definitely feel around 7C you know, to mm-hmm. to on-site these routes. Route finding is, is tricky on it. You know, it was unchalked, it was a bit green. It's not super obvious and the moves aren't easy. And there's probably th- two or three sequences that I nearly fell off. And then I committed to the main cruxes and I got to these edges. Now these edges, these crimpers, but your, your feet aren't very good. And I stood there for a minute or two, working it out. It probably took me over an hour, hour and a half to get there. And I probably spent another hour in that position. And there was a hold 
a move above me, but there weren't any proper handholds, you know, not like the, you know, there's a kind of a crystal thing from a left hand, a small side pull low down from a right hand. So I was going, you know, up and down those think I can't traverse straight right. The rest foot that's quite famous on, you know, two thirds, three quarter height on Indian face, that was just a bit too far up to my left to reach. There's no bolts, there's no chalk, there's not a crack to follow. There's no good way to know if he's gone the best way. Basically, he realized that the route was way harder than other E7s that he'd been onsetting. I tried all possible options, you know, basically the, the move, the move that I would have had to have done is, you know, not much from a left hand, quite a small left foothold and a spring for a hold above. And if the hold wasn't very good or wasn't quite really good because I was pretty pumped, uh, I would have fallen off. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I didn't, I didn't go for the move because I would have died. But yeah, I tried all possible options. I was quite, you know, I was quite strong mind, you know, or just said strong minded ish in terms of just wanting to give it absolutely every possible you know spark of energy to get up the climb because i still thought it was e7 <laughs> eventually it did dawn on me you know i can't move right i can't go i can't commit to this move um so that you know it was the final alternative was to untie from the ropes so i dropped the ropes to adam can we can we pause for a moment <laughs> Look, that's kind of messed up that like have you ever been in a remotely in a situation where you thought like the solution to this is just to untie from the rope and drop it to my partner? No, I have never been in a climbing situation where I felt like <laughs> I should untie. I haven't even really heard of many situations like that. I mean, I don't know. No, it's it's totally crazy. Like how hard would it be? To I've, I've had situations where your rope gets stuck or something, and then you've potentially untied but that's typically on like mountain terrain or something and the rope is like looped around some boulder and you're like oh i'll just go sort it out but i've never i can't imagine being on a vertical wall really rock climbing and decide i mean honestly i don't even know if i can untie one handed <laughs> you know it's like a lot of the it's like hard to imagine hanging onto a little edge and, and untying so i dropped the ropes to adam who didn't adam wild who didn't know the crag my friend and said right you're gonna have to go around and hoon me a rope <laughs> But it took him a long time. First half hour, I was fairly confident. But then after an hour went by, I was getting more screwed. And then, you know, it just, um, yeah, after, after the hour, then you know, things went progressively downhill. <laughs> My arms was, was totally spunked. They'd been absolutely nuked for half an hour. Because like I say, I was probably on it for about four hours. And, you know, an hour and a half of thinking I'm going to on-site it and then an hour of slow realisation that I'm you know if I go for the move if I go for the move up I'm probably going to die and I can't go anywhere else and then thinking about the options drop the ropes you know so I was on it for quite a while but eventually I did start to lose my cool and I I started to shout for Adam I said Adam you know where are you Adam any longer every minute was felt a year when you know where are you Adam when you think this is it sort of thing I can't run any longer I can't run any longer everything was giving way like the fingertips were bleeding the tendons the sinews you know what I mean it's just like I can't run any longer I can't run any longer you know just fingers bleed you know most tips bleeding and I thought fuck I am going to die I'm probably going to die on this on this bit of rock it seemed ludicrous just the end of my endurance it was my, my strongest aspect of my climbing it was just the end of it you know because every minute felt like my last for about half an hour And eventually a rope, a 
disappears, so they drift out to the right. For Adam, it had been epic to find his way to the top of the cliff to help his friend. At that moment, he couldn't see Calf, and he had to guess where he was at on the face below. So the rope ended up 10 feet too far to the right for Calf to reach. And I could see him, and I thought, fuck, I am going to die seeing this rope. Did you think about jumping for it? I just, I'm not a very good jumper at the best of times. What happened next? And he pulls them back up and eventually, and then hoons them. Adam swings the ropes across the cliff, hoping they will find Calf as they slide across the rock. So I just grabbed the bloody ropes. I think I managed to tie some slippery hitch or something shit and just fall about 50, 60 foot in at the base of Ember, the next route right, the C1. If you caught that, Calf managed to tie a sort of friction hitch and he jumped. And between the hitch sliding and the rope stretch, he landed 60 feet to the right at the base of another route. And I'm in bits. And um, Adam Wilde comes down. He's crying. And we just we leave the ropes there. Fuck, we go down. And, I, yeah, I couldn't feel my feet for two weeks. And I nearly, I think it was really close to stopping climbing. That's, I mean, it's, it's really the stuff of nightmares. It's like my hands are sweating just imagining the, the position. The day after, I went for a, um, I went climbing down Kumpenan. Oh, I didn't climb, in fact, sorry. We went for a walk, or not even a walk. We just sat outside of Adam's van, and I dipped my toes in the um, stream. But I had the best-tasting egg sandwich I've ever tasted. You know, when you, you're just really close to death, and the sandwich just tasted out of this world. Um, and, yeah, I was trying to get some feeling back in my toes, but I didn't manage it. Like I say, because I, I really loved climbing at the time, loved it more than anything else, but, like, you know, it was very close to not climbing again. <laughs> In 2018, 18 years later, Calf returned to Master's Wall and successfully climbed the route. He felt it ranked amongst the hardest trad climbs he's done in Britain. Early on, you touched on the why. Like, why do these kinds of routes? And you brought up the history of it and, and how powerful that can be for people's motivations, why it's will accept something that doesn't even sometimes make sense. Some of the most dangerous and famous routes in the UK have these crazy survival stories attached to them, which in a logical world would be like a deterrent to most people, but it's like catnip for some people. Could you two talk to me about that? So yeah, I mean, some of your climbing heroes, certainly for me, like in the past, there's routes that I've wanted to do because they're kind of my old climbing heroes and you're treading in their footsteps when you're doing their routes. Do you know what I mean? And, and obviously the closer to home, you know, maybe more affinity you have for some of the, some of the peoples and the history routes. Because like you're saying, yeah, some of, the, some of the stuff to look back on, things like the Bells of Bells, it's fucking to rubbish route <laughs> when it comes down to it. But I stuck my neck out when I was 19 to, to do it. And I'm sure, yeah, I don't know, for you, you know, similar kind of different motivations for stuff close to your home. There's something to be said for the difference in your intrinsic motivations and your extrinsic, you know, because the, the intrinsic motivation will get you up a lot of things and you'll take a lot of risk for the intrinsic. Like, I just want to feel, I want the experience of climbing. I want to enjoy the movement. I want to be up there without a rope. You know, it's like, it feels incredible. But the int- extrinsic motivation is where the history of a route comes in, the culture of it, like the reputational side of it, like knowing that you could be the first to do something, nobody knowing that no one has ever done it before in that style. I mean, those kinds of things. And, you know, it's like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting some motivation extrinsically. I mean, like having external factors help motivate you to do something difficult. I mean, you know, that's fine as long as it's not, as long as your ratio isn't skewed too far, you know, one way or the other. And I think that that like the 
yeah, I mean, the, the history and the culture of climbing, I mean, a lot of that taps into the, the extrinsic motivations, I think. There's obviously more climbers today than there were in the 1980s or even in 2000, but does the does does this ground-up on-site style, has it gotten equally as popular, or is it still a thing? The, 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 like you said, when we talk about dangerous routes, they just they have gone a bit, for, certainly on the on-site manner, They've gone a bit out of vogue. Why do you think that is? Um, well, because you're going to die on them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Besides the obvious. Yeah, I guess. I, I just think it's gone out of vogue. I think it's gone from quite you know, dangerous, dangerous ideals in the 80s to progressively um, safer and safer ideals over the last 25 years. After the break, we do more math and we talk mountain lions. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Alex? Thoughts? Oh, man, spending an hour just treading water, like, hoping to figure something out. And then to untie your rope and, you know, have sort of maybe a half hour of hopefulness where you're like, okay, it'll be fine. My partner's going to get me. It's all good. You know, in some ways, that would be a moment of great relief where you untie, where you're like, okay, well, now I'm done trying. Now I'm just going to get rescued. This is going to be great. But then as the time drags on and you realize that you're not getting rescued that fast, and then you start to actually start to panic a little with like am i just going to die here while waiting to get rescued i mean everything about it is so terrible like the idea of just being on the wall for four hours i think i think it's so crazy too the amount of sway uh and that ethics and history have over british climbing like in one like it's just so impressive and proud and then you take a step back and it's like auditioning for the darwin awards Technically, it just seems so unnecessary. Like, there'd be a safer way to do this. And that's how the rest of the world does it, really. But part of it is a cultural thing, too, where you're like, this whole scene is so freaking weird. So, like, in Hard Grit, there's a... Hard Grit was a VHS-era climbing film. It's basically a cult classic. Like, the first ascent of this route, Mashuga, which is, I think, supposed to be E9 or E8 or something. It's, like, quite a hard grade. And so when he climbs it, he climbs this big, hard, ret feature, and then he places, like, one piece of gear, and then he tops out. But so... Uh, when I visited the grit, I repeated that route and 
It turns out it's basically like a 12D Arette solo or like a really high ball V6, maybe like 20 or 30 feet or something. And then there's a little break where you can get gear. And then there's like a 510 exit or something. And I was like, this is completely stupid. Like, why would you carry gear and a rope and have a belayer and have all this stuff if you have to solo all the hard climbing anyway? I was like, this route is just a free solo. But, you know, the first ascensionist did it with a rope and gear because he's like, he's going trad climbing. And I was like, this isn't trad climbing. This is soloing. You know, it's like if you're doing all the hardest moves with no protection, that's freaking free soloing. Like, why bother wearing a harness? You know, like, why have training weight on while you go free soloing? It's totally stupid. The whole UK trad scene is just a totally different world. Did you like it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, you know, (laughs) it's like, yeah, I'm all worked up of like, it's so crazy. It's so stupid. And I'm like, you know, but I did have a good time and did have some some meaningful experiences for sure. So this season on Climbing Gold, we are we're going to dive into the topic of risk. We've got seven stories about people taking chances. Sometimes people are drawn to these powerful moments in their lives by history, others by visions of the future sometimes by curiosity, and at other times simply out of necessity. We'll traverse from the mind of a thinker who has dedicated her life to understanding why we zero in on some risk while completely ignoring the obvious ones, all the way to the frozen faces of the planet's biggest mountains. Alex, you also have thought a lot about this topic in your career. I think a really good place to start would be to just ask, how do you define risk? I think the definition of risk is just a situation involving exposure to danger. I just looked that up. And so the way I've always talked about risk is the severity of the outcome times the likelihood of the outcome. You know, the the risk of something being the 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 total of the the likelihood of something happening and how serious it will be if it does happen. Mm-hmm. The reason you have to think about it is like multiplying factors there is because there are a lot of things in climbing that are clearly very high consequence, like climbing without a rope. You're sure that you're going to die if you fall off. So you're like, that's incredibly high consequence. But the likelihood of falling off is often very, very low if the train is easy and the rock is solid. And so in a situation like that, it's actually not that risky, despite the fact that people often use the term risky to def- uh, to describe that circumstance. You know, it's like people look at free soloing pictures, they're like, that's really risky. And you're like, well, no, because the likelihood of falling is very, very low, even though the consequences would be very high. Could you, could you expand on that? Like, could you use the equation to compare, say, sport climbing to high ball bouldering? With sport climbing, the consequences of a fall are negligible. I mean, they're not quite zero because you can't occasionally, you know, twist your ankle maybe. But really, you know, most sport climbing falls are very safe. And so even though you're going to take many, many falls or, you know, hundreds of falls as a sport climber, just they're not going to matter. You know, they're, they're just safe. They're part of the game. Yeah. And, and bouldering? There's a lot of uncertainty involved with it. Because if you get high enough, you're like, yeah, you could break your ankles, but like, what if you miss the pad and you fall over backward and you crack your head on a boulder? Like, you can start imagining sort of what-if sort of scenarios with high ball bouldering where you're just not totally sure what might happen because realistically, you've never fallen from 25 feet up and you're not totally sure where the landing's going to be and you don't really know what'll happen if you fall that far and you bounce off the pad. Like, will you bounce or will you just crater into the pads? Like, you don't really know because you've never done it because you are sort of multiplying out the likelihood of falling versus the consequences but you don't totally know what the consequences might be like they might be fine so it might be fine to, to fall from up high but you don't really know you know and you don't want to be the one that finds out by having you know your tibia shoot through the pad like a harpoon <laughs> you know which 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 happens sometimes <laughs> oh. oh man i have like the shivers right now <laughs> so you're saying high bobble during is more risky than sport climbing yeah 
figuring out how to take good risks is one of the biggest challenges of life. It's it's a hard thing to do. And even seeing the risks that we are taking can be be hard to do. Well, I think that humans will always struggle with objectively evaluating risk just because some risks capture the imagination in a really dramatic way. You know, like the idea of getting eaten by a shark or attacked by a lion or, you know, taken down by a mountain lion while you're out jogging. Having to untie from your rope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, those are things that capture the imagination and give you nightmares and and really kind of stress you out. But the idea of, uh, you know, getting heart disease or something over 30 years of, of eating a poor diet, like that doesn't really capture the imagination in the same way. It doesn't doesn't sort of inspire horror in the same way. And so despite the fact that you're much more likely to die from heart disease than you are from a mountain lion attack, you'll probably spend far more time worrying about mountain lions when you're out yeah. of nature. Thing is, I think when we think about physical risks, we experience uh, a more visceral reaction, which is what we normally call fear. But I think when we take financial risks or you know emotional risks things like that we don't really call it fear in the same way a lot of the time i mean people will be like kind of giddy or excited or like on edge or stressed or you know like they'll have different terminology like different 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 verbiage to describe the sensation of a fear that comes around taking other kinds of risks and i never really thought thought about this but it is kind of interesting that you know when we talk about fear we're normally talking about the physical side of fear like something might happen to your body but you know, when you're taking other kinds of risks, you're still sort of experiencing the same thing, like deep dread or like, oh, God, you know, something something terrible could happen. But you normally just sort of hide it with other terms. You know, like, oh, I'm just feeling a little cranky today or, you know, like, oh, I just don't, you know, it's like, when's the last time a hedge fund manager was like, I'm just so scared today? You know, it's like, I mean, people would be like, oh, this is a big, like, this is a big play. I'm not sure if I'm making the right choice. This is sketchy, you know, but then they like go do a couple lines of Coke and they're like, it's fine. And you're kind of <laughs> like, no, you're fucking gripped. Like, this is the same as walking on the side of a cliff. Like, you know, this is scary, mm-hmm. but it's like, really, you're afraid because mm-hmm. you're taking a risk. You know, I would imagine at some point or another, you've both heard someone who makes a habit of engaging in physical risk defend their choices by saying kind of something like well people die every day in cars or you could get hit by a car crossing the street like i think you've probably heard that and when i hear that like i know they might just be like struggling to explain themselves but i always i'm like i hope you don't actually approach the risks you're taking with that thinking no, it's not really. Though, to be fair, I am one of those people who have said things like that in the past, because when you get tired of talking about risk, it's easy to just fall back on the fact that everybody takes risk every day in their life to some extent or another. And, you know, we're always just doing our best to quantify those risks how we can. And it's not always uh, perfect math. Like it's, it's not that easy to quantify. And so, you know, to some extent, we're all just doing our best and muddling our way through. And so I think when you fall back on on sort of crutches, like, well, we all drive sometimes, that's just a bit of a bit of a you know what do you call like a like an abdication you're just kind of giving up on trying to figure it out for yourself it's like realistically extreme sports are are extreme for a reason like you know they are more dangerous they are riskier Mm -hmm. you know i mean that's the challenge of talking about risk is that every conversation kind of falls back on the like but how do you really quantify? Like, how do you really know? Ultimately, it comes down to like, what do you feel comfortable with? Everybody thinks they're making good choices right up until they get injured or they die. Nobody ever thinks they're being risky, really. And that's why it's worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thanks, Calf and Hazel, for sharing your stories and perspectives. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Fitzcahal, with additional mixing and editing by Matt Martin. Production help by Lauren Delani Miller, Evan Phillips, Austin Syadak, and Anya Miller. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, Cordelia Zars, and me. Our executive producers are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks for Duct Tape Than Beer, and Jonathan Redzik and Ben Endy for RXR Sports. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Follow along on Instagram at Climbing Gold. It helps us out. Thank you for listening.